Okay, so chapter 3, um, we started learning about the anatomy of the soul. Now, it's important to realize that when we say the anatomy of the soul, in this context we are referring specifically to the nefesh alikis, the, the divine soul. So in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, all of these three levels that we mentioned, nefesh, ashruach, neshama, and he was referring the entire time in chapter 2 to the nefesh alikis, to the divine soul. Now, what's the purpose of the Alter Rebbe explaining to us how the soul works? So, I, last week we were discussing the, the example, you know, you give someone a gadget, you give someone a, a vehicle or whatever it is. So, okay, they know how to drive, fine, no problem. But if anything happens to it, if they want to use it out to its full potential, they have to know exactly how it works. The Alter Rebbe here in Tanya is trying to explain to us how that serving God is close to you, right? We just learned in this past week's parasha. Now, in order to do that, see, this is the ultimate example of having a gadget and not even knowing how to use it, right? God gives us life, we wake up, and we're conscious in this world, and we go through life, and we don't even know how to use our own soul. We don't even know how to use our own functionalities. We don't know, how, we don't know about them at all. Why? Because as kids, we're only in tune with our emotions. We were never given the tools with which we could access anything that is beyond, um, how do you say, feeling-oriented. So that's it. My feelings run amok. I'm reading about parenting. Why not? So, uh, so one of the things about parenting is you have to you have to understand and appreciate that your children experience feelings that are too big for them. They don't know what to do with it, right? So it makes them feel scared, it makes them feel insecure, and all that type of stuff. Their feelings are too big for their small little bodies. Um, and that's true. That's true. And that doesn't go away, by the way. Even adults, right? Sometimes we feel feelings that are too big for us, and we don't know how to handle it, we don't know how to regulate them, we don't know how to deal with it. And when we are, when we are victim to these huge feelings, so then, yeah, how can you control yourself? How can you serve God, Right? How can you say, How can you say that it's close to you? So here in chapter 3, so chapter 2, the Alter Rebbe said, By the way, you should know that you have a soul inside of you that you're probably not intuitively in touch with. The Nefesh Abaham is the animal soul you feel and you engage with all the time. That's the soul that wants you to eat and sleep and be successful, right? You should know there's a Nefesh Hashanah, so there's a second soul, okay? And the second soul is a part of God. All right, what am I supposed to do with this soul? Ah, this soul functions in a very specific way. This soul is the, the life inside of you through which you are going to have a relationship with God. Wonderful. How do I use it? So before you know how to use it, you have to know what it is. How, is it, how does it work? The ultimate goal, what, what, what's the ultimate goal in a relationship? You have a feeling for each other, right? You know, when, when uh, man and woman come together and they decide to get married, not necessarily do they love each other. In other words, love is not, uh, I say, it's not an essential ingredient to marriage. Right? When you come to uh, the rabbi, right? You want to get married. So it's very, very technical type of stuff, right? Are you, are you single? Are you this? Are you that? Eh? You know, for sure that you're Jewish. Okay, very good. We can do the wedding. The rabbi doesn't have to dig into the relationship and see do they love each other or not. In fact, until they live a married life, they can't really love each other, right? They don't really know each other that well either. And they get married. What's the ultimate goal? 
It says it in the blood, the seventh blessing of the of the wedding blessing. So there should be ahava, love, achva, brothership, whatever, fellowship, uh, shalom, peace, reus, friendship. Right? There should be there should be tremendous feelings. Where do these feelings come from, and how do you, um, how do you say, develop those feelings? So the ultimate goal when it comes to servicing, when it comes to serving Hashem, is that we should love and fear Hashem. What does it say in the Shema? You should love the, you should love God, right? Other places in Torah, you should also fear God. So these are ultimate relationship goals when it comes to our relationship with God. How do you love and fear God? Oh, 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 getting to know. There we go. Getting to know. So what, what does that mean? So the Altar says like this, you have a nefesh of the kids, you have a divine soul. And this divine soul is made up of ten faculties. These ten faculties are split up into two. The top three are seichel, intellect, intelligence, chachma, binodas. And this intelligence is going to give birth, is going to create all the other things that you need, all the, all the emotions, right? Um, just turn this off. I don't know how. Huh, all right. Um, you see? I don't even know how to use this computer. Um Gotta be away to do this. One second. Just a moment. There's gotta be a way. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. Okay, we're back, almost. Where is it? There we go. Okay, so you have the the level of they have the three faculties of intelligence, and then you have the seven faculties of emotions. And you should know that intelligence controls the emotions. This knowledge itself already gives us an understanding. A realization that indeed that loving God and fearing God is close to you. Why? Typically feelings are beyond our control. Feelings are just what we feel. That's it. Whatever I feel, I feel. But now the Alter Rebbe is leveling the playing field. And he says when it comes to the Nefesh Alekis, to the Divine Soul, everything depends on intelligence. It all depends on your thoughts. Now that, you're in control of. You're in control of how you think, of how you understand, etc. Yeah. I was thinking though, because you said at one point here that sometimes your your emotions run amok because you don't know about this chabad part. Or, but even when you know about it, sometimes it's hard. In other words, you're in a situation intellectually, you know this is right or this is wrong or I have to do this or I don't. But emotionally, you're like, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get to that. Very good. So the first thing to know is that these tools exist, that we have intelligence that could control emotions. And that in our life, it's not just the emotions controlling the, int- the intelligence. Right? Um, Western philosophy is follow your heart. Your emotions control everything. Understand your emotions. Right? Try to live life the way your emotions want. Right? You're like this, you want that, you don't want that. This is it, finished. The altar says, no. That's not the way it works when it comes to God. 
That's not the way it works when it comes to your relationship with God. And that's not the way it works when it comes to your nefeshel kiss to your divine soul. Now, also, we have to remember, as we're learning through this chapter, we're talking here about the divine soul, the way it is for itself. What I mean by that? There's the divine soul by itself, always wants to have a connection to God. Only knows God, doesn't know of anything else. But when the soul is engaged in the body, what happens? There are other considerations, right? There's the body, and there's the desires of the body, and there are the distractions of the world, right? So there are a lot of, there's a lot of struggle that goes on over here. We're not talking here about the struggles. Struggles we'll get to later on. That, that's for later. But right now we just want to talk about that which we have within us in its pristine and wholesome state. And this nefesh alikis, the way it works, is that the intelligence controls the emotions. So what does that mean? So, so the Alter Rebbe goes on to explain that you have three levels in intelligence. You have Chochma, Bino, Das. Now, as we learned, Chochma means it's like the, the, the burst of inspiration. That, uh, let me say, the lightning bolt, the bolt of inspiration of understanding an idea. It's a kernel of an idea, right? I'm sure you've heard these terms when it came to understanding something. I have, an occur- I have a kernel of an idea, I have an inspiration, a light bulb went off. But even then, at that point, you don't really understand what's going on. You have to start taking it apart. But Chachma, that's the first part. Now, Chachma, the word Chachma has the two words, Koyachma, which means, what is the potential here? Um, when you have that, that, that flash of inspiration, you know that there's tremendous potential to understand an idea, but you don't know what it is yet. And then comes the hard work of Bina. Bina is to understand, to try to understand and to unpack this inspiration that just came into your mind. Um, so uh, let's go to page 12 in the red book. Uh, these, so I'm, the, I'm on the left side, the left column, in the top paragraph, like about 10 lines down. The line begins, this is called Bina. 11 lines down. This is called Bina. So these, Chachma and Bina, are the very father and mother which give birth to love of God and awe and dread of Him. Right? So just like father and mother want to give birth to a child, there's the, the little seed, and then there's gestation in the mother for about nine months. Same thing over here. Chachma is the flash of inspiration, and then Bina is the hard work of unpacking it and, uh, and when, when Chachma and Bina operate together, that's when they give birth, they create this idea of love of God and fear and dread of God. What's missing so far? Das. das. Well, what does is, what is Das do, right? So far we know Chaba, right? Chachma and Bina. We'll get to Das in a moment. Now, the Alter Rebbe explains, how does, this, how does Chachma and Bina, when they work together as father and mother, they create lo- uh, love of God and fear of God? For when the intellect in the rational soul deeply contemplates and immerses itself exceedingly in the greatness of God. Now, how do you do that? How do you contemplate in the greatness of God? Study Torah. So how is learning how to blow a shayfar contemplating in the greatness of God? So it's not just any part of Torah. You have to be studying certain parts of Torah. You have to be uh, studying Torah, which specifically discusses the greatness of God. So we have several options. 
One option is you 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 uh, you immerse it, it immerses itself exceedingly in the greatness of God. How He fills all worlds. All right, fills all worlds means like this: that when God creates the world, the world is here. There are so many different things in this world. So many. Each one of them has its way. Each one of them has its um, you know purpose and its mission. Right, and it does its thing. Each one of them is different, right? And um, and God is in, and God is creating and running each and every single one of these things. All the time, right? There's no there's no break. If there would be a break, it would cease to exist. When do we discuss this? When do we think about this? We think about this during our prayers. Uh, the very be- the, the first part of the prayers is called Psuke de Zimra, verses of praise. No siddur in this room, huh? Um, the, the, so the verses of praise, which are basically selections from Tehillim, and what do these selections from Tehillim do? They describe creation. They describe the world in in, in amazing detail. So when you're sitting on a regular Sunday morning, and you're and you're f- contemplating on the fact there are these huge mountains, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. There's the weather that goes perfect in every single place exactly the way it should be and the fact that things are growing and the fact that we have food and the fact that everything is happening you know there's there's snowstorms and there's hurricanes and there's tropical weather and there's all, all these different things and they're happening they're all inter interconnected it's amazing by the way someone who doesn't pray with a sitter someone who does not have these words of king david every single day doesn't recite them every single day, doesn't think about them every day, can go by many, many days without even thinking about the fact that you're living in an awesome universe that's created by God at every single moment, at every single detail. Talking about the largest of creations to the smallest little gnat or the smallest little worm that's in the, that's in, that's in the earth. King David, with his, with his divine uh, inspiration, was able to put together chapters that literally take us on a trip to become amazed, to heal them, right? That we should become amazed at just at nature. Now, you can become amazed with nature and forget that that's God. So that, that ruins the entire purpose over here. No, no, no. It's about contemplating on the greatness of the world from the lenses of understanding that all of this comes from God. All right, so that's one level of contemplation. That's contemplating how God fills the world, that God is involved in each thing on its level. Running it in its way. And then you have, and encompasses all worlds. You contemplate on the fact that God is just transcendent and encompasses everything. Where do we see that? Where do we experience that? When it comes to miracles. Miracles come and they basically blow away the laws of nature. right? The fact that seas can split, the water can turn into blood. And the fact that all these tremendous miracles can happen. Right? When you learn about miracles and you think about them and you go into all the details of those miracles, you're amazed at how God interacts with this world in a way that He encompasses all worlds equally and that He is not bound by the laws of nature. He's not bound by the routine of nature. He's able to change it. Right? There's another way how you get involved in understanding the greatness of God. But all of this is the way God relates to the world. And then if you start to learn other things where you realize how the fact that God is creator, that is not a definition for God. Maybe that's one of God's functions, one of the things that God chooses to do, but that's not Him. That's not God. Then you have the next level. 
and in the presence of whom everything is considered as nothing. You start to learn and appreciate and understand that when you have creator and creation, in truth the creator is so much far removed from the concept of creation that to the creator himself, creation doesn't really exist. That's not him. It's like, I'll, I'll give a very bad example, but let's say you are, um, you're the world's greatest doctor, okay? You're the world's greatest surgeon, and you're, you're saving lives back and forth, all that type of stuff. And then um, you're driving your car, right? And you need gas. So you pull over to the gas station and you get out, and you put your credit card in, and you take the phone, and you put it into the thing, and you start, and someone says, wow, you know how to fill your car with gas, Amazing! You're 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 a fuel filler. You're you're a little kid. Is like wow! You know how to do that? That's amazing! You're my hero. You know how to fill a car with gas. What, kid? <laughs> that's not what I do. I open up brains. I fix brains. I fix hearts. But to this kid, like, whoa! You know how to fill up a car with gas? To a certain extent, we're like wow! God, you made a snowstorm. <laughs> Look at this. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. God, someone was very ill and he got better. <laughs> Amazing. And God's like, well, that's not me. And, and we learn that from, and, and we and we understand that through learning chassidus, and we understand that through learning those teachings in the Torah, which describe or give us some type of an understanding of what God is. So, which basically means also we can't just sit and like contemplate on all. That doesn't lead anywhere. We have to be learning stuff. We have to be guided and focused through the teachings of the Torah and understanding how God creates the world and how God does miracles and how God is so much far removed from the world and all of that. So when we contemplate all of these things, there will be born and aroused in his mind and thought the emotion of awe for the divine majesty to fear and be humble before his greatness. Blessed be he which is without end or limit, and to have the dread of God in his heart. So the first thing, when you see something overwhelming, amazing, you're, you're just, you're, you tremble. You don't know how to deal with this. You're frightened. You feel like you're nothing. So now we have, Yeras Hashem, fear of God. But it doesn't stop there. Next, his heart will glow with an intense love, like burning coals, with a passion, desire, and longing, and a yearning soul toward the greatness of the Ein Sof, blessed, be, blessed is he. <coughs> this constant, huh? Chesed. What? Chesed. Which is chesed, but it's ahava, the love, right? The tremendous love that you have for God. This constitutes the culminating passion of the soul of which scripture speaks as, my soul yearns indeed, it pines, and my soul thirsts for God, and my soul thirsts for you. These are all quotes from King David in the, in the book of Tehillim, where he's saying that I'm thirsting for God. What does it mean he's thirsting for God? It means that he's already contemplated and meditated on the greatness of God. He's, he, he has this tremendous dread. Of, in other words, he, he's, uh, he, he's um, aware of God's greatness. And as a result, he feels like a little puny little thing. And as a result, because he's so small, he wants to be connected to something so eternal and true and real, like God. So in other words, that yira, that fear, 
even though to a certain point you kind of like hold back, but it doesn't push you away from God. On the contrary, that yira, that dread, that awe that you have in the presence of God, ultimately motivates you to be attracted to God, to want to come close to God. Now the Altarev is going to, um, you know, in, in chapter one, when he was describing the nefesh of Bahamas, the, the 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 animating soul, right, the human soul. So he said like this: We read in the holy books that this world is made of four elements, right? These four basic ingredients: fire, water, air, and earth. Now, the same is true with every soul. Every soul also has these four elements. Obviously, it doesn't mean in a physical way, right? There's no physical fire, physical water, or earth in our soul, because the soul is spiritual. However, uh, the concepts, the concepts of fire, water, earth, and air uh, constitute the, how do you say, the, the general makeup of the soul. Um, and therefore, when it comes to the nefesh of the animating soul, these four elements are the roots, these are the sources for different types of bad character traits, like anger and haughtiness, or uh, indulgence, which comes from water, or uh, uh, how do you say depression, which comes from earth, which is very heavy, right? So depression is heavy. When it comes to the divine soul, uh, the same thing is true about the divine soul. That it also has these four elements. These four elements are fire, water, earth, and air. And in chapter three, when he starts to discuss the anatomy of the soul, so he says the the results of intelligence and emotions actually could be traced to these elements. He's going to describe two of them. He says the the the, the 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 emotion of of longing and and pining for God, right? My soul yearns, it did and pine it pines. This idea of Abba, this tremendous love and attraction that we have for God that we that we want it's a passion. This is the fire of the of the divine soul. And that fire is in the heart. That's where the emotion is. But then there's also the water of the divine soul. And what is that? The water of the divine soul, that is in the mind. That is in the mind. In the in the animal soul, the water is also in the heart. And the idea of indulgence and all of that. Um, but but in the, in the in the in the divine soul, the water represents that which is in the mind. Uh, so this thirst is derived from the element of fire, which is found in the divine soul. As students of natural science affirm, and so it is in Eitz Chaim, which is a book of Kabbalah, the element of fire is in the heart, while the source of the element of water and moisture is in the brain, which is explained in Eitz Chaim Portal 50 to refer to the faculty of Chachmah, which is called the water of the divine soul. The rest of the Midot are all offshoots of fear and love and their derivations as is explained elsewhere. So until now, so, so by now we have a, a pretty clear understanding uh, the function of intelligence, how that creates the emotions. The two most important emotions that we have to understand is fear of God, which is Gvura, and love of God, which comes from Chesed. And all the rest of the emotions, which there are many of them, are all basically offshoots of these two main ideas. Either we are attracted and, and coming closer to God, or we are in awe and therefore in dread of God. And therefore we're just, you know, uh, knowing our place, as we say. Feeling that bittle, that, that nullification in the presence of God.
Any questions so far? Everything is clear, huh? All right. So now... Mm -hmm. And he also transcends all the worlds. Right. So it's like he's, like you said, he's, he's, um, he's far removed, but yet he is everything. Right, very good question. So fills all worlds means that he's everything. Transcends or encompasses means that he's like, he's outside of everything. So what, what's the deal? So let's talk about the body for a moment, right? Um, a, a human body, right? A living human body. What is there in a body? There are so many different parts of the body. There's the head, there's the heart, there's the hands, there's the fingers. There's all these different you know, things going on. Now, one thing is clear. We're going to start to analyze the body and study it and, and you know, figure out what's going on. Um, <coughs> the body has different parts to it, and we, and we relate to them very differently. So, for example, if someone comes to the doctor and says, Doctor, I said, my head is hurting very, very much. This is a cause for concern. Like, very big concern. Okay, let's you know, do an MRI. Let's figure things out. Let's go. What's going on in that? Because if something's wrong with the head, that could be fatal. Someone comes in and says, Doctor, my pinky is hurting. Uh, put on a little something, whatever. We'll figure it out, yeah? But, like, that's not going to be the emergency, right? So, when, when you're looking at the body in such a way, you're looking at every single part of the body as its unique thing that has its own... That, that has its own... Uh, I say... That, when you're looking at the body this way, all the parts of the body are on different levels, right? Because the soul that animates them actually engages with the different parts of the body differently. The relationship of the soul to the head is different than the relationship of the soul to the fingernail, right? Or to all of these different things. But now, let's look at the body a little differently. Let's say, which part of the body, which part of the body is alive? All of it. All of it is alive. Which part of the body is a human being? All of it. That's it. So once that, so it's a, it's all a human being. Yeah. When you're looking at the at the at the entire human, at that point there's no head and fingers and fingernails and all that. At this point, there's the person. There's the life. There's the human being. Without the differences. Right, and it's a it's true point of view, right? Both of these points of view are true um, because the soul, as it engages in the body, engages in both ways. On the one hand, it brings life to everything. On the other hand, it brings a certain type of life to one part, another type of life to another part, etc. So the same thing is true with God. God creates the entire world and God is in charge of everything, right? Yep, yeah. but then there's, you know, the way God is engaged with the sun. <laughs> it's pretty powerful. It stays forever. And then there's the way God is engaged with the little worm in the middle of the, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the you know, in the earth. A little less, how you say, intense, right? But then, if you're going to ask, one second, what is creation? The answer is everything. Everything is part of creation. So when you look at nature, nature puts a premium on everything has its place, everything has its role, and everything is doing its thing right. So when you're looking at nature, the sun is far more important or far more impactful or far more connected to God than the little worm or a leaf, right? It's a whole different... But when you look at, when, when you look at the world as just God's creation, everything 
is God's creation. And how is that expressed mostly? When it comes to miracles. When it comes to miracles, you're not like, wow, how did God split the sea? One second, if you split the, the water in this cup, that's less amazing. When you look at nature, there's a profound difference between the water in this cup and the ocean. How can you compare? But when it came to the splitting of the sea, God split everything. All the water split. Didn't matter. Everything split. Everything became a reflection of God. So that so so in this case, God is not inside everything. God is transcendent and above everything. Everything matters and nothing matters. In this way that God relates to the world. In this level, the sun and the and the little whatever, the, the little worm are on the same level, the same playing field. But they still make a difference. There's still a way that God is expressed through the world. Then you have the third level where all of this doesn't, doesn't matter at all to God. All of this doesn't exist to God. Which brings us to the next thing. Das. What's the function of Das? See, as we explained, you have Chochma and you have Bina. Chachma is the inspiration, and Bina is the hard work of unpacking that inspiration and getting all of the details. So once you have Chachma and Bina, you have a complete idea. So what's the problem? All right, once you have father and mother, you can have kids. It says, Das, the etymology of which is to be found in the verse, and Adam knew, Yoda Chava, implies attachment and union. Das could be a noun and a verb. What I mean by that, das could be called knowledge. He has a lot of das. He has a lot of. He knows a lot of facts, a lot of stuff. But das could also be a, a verb. You're doing something. What are you doing with das? So the first time, ah, getting to know. Oh, it's even more than that. It's even more. The first time that this comes up, the the word yoda, that someone knew something. First time this comes up in, in the Torah, does not describe an intellectual activity. The first time it comes up. Adam and Eve were created, and Adam knew his wife Chava. What does that mean? Adam Yoda es Chava. So I'll give you a little hint of what Yoda es Chava means. Right after it says Vataran, she became pregnant and gave birth. How does a woman become pregnant? There's only one way. Yeah? Right? Intimacy. So... When the Torah says, and when the Torah wants to tell us that Adam cohabitated with Chava and had children, he uses the word Yoda. He knew her. No, he didn't sit down for a cup of coffee and say, tell me about your feelings. Tell me about yourself. Oh, little baby. No, that's not how it worked. What is that action where father and mother come together, where male and female come together? That's the ultimate connection. That so that's what Yoda means connect when you have Chachma and Bina you have that intelligence you have an idea but you don't connect with that idea there's no true love and fear that's going to come from there that's what Dalai tells us here that is so again we're, we're still dealing with an intellectual I say we're, we're dealing here with an intellectual exercise but a different type of intellectual exercise. <coughs> One binds his mind with a very firm and strong bond to and firmly fixes his thought on the greatness of the Ain Self, blessed is he, 
without diverting his mind from him. For even one who is wise in understanding of the greatness of the Ain Self, blessed is he, will not. Uh, let me skip two lines to produce in his soul true love and fear. Unle- okay, so will not unless he binds his knowledge and fixes his thought with firmness and perseverance. He will not produce in his soul true love and fear, but only vain fancies. This is a very important thing to understand, to know, pun intended. You could be learning, you could be reading the right stuff, you could be meditating on the right stuff, and you can explain it, you can do all the wonderful stuff, all those things. (coughs) But if you're not going to uh, how you lose yourself in it you know you know people go into the, you go into like a I'm not a guy for art I'm not a real art guy right but you know how art museums make their money I don't know if that's how they make their money but this is what art museums are for sometimes you can go in a museum and you see someone standing in front of a picture in front of a painting for a long time what's going on they already they saw all the details in the painting then move on to the next thing. When you, a, a real artist is able to, let's say, paint a scene, someone is able to stand there and lose themselves in the scene. There's a story, uh, the, the, I think the previous time said this, he heard it from his father. One of the, there was, a, there was a, an art, a piece of art that depicted a battlefield. A battlefield. And Russians against the Japanese, whatever it was, the battlefield. And there was a fellow standing in front of the in front of the, the painting. And at one point, he fainted. Fainted. Why did he faint? He was a soldier, and he had experienced the battle. And that's pretty bad stuff. And as he was standing there in front of the painting, and the painting was so exact, and everything was expressed so in such a real way the soldier was able to lose himself in the painting he, he, he connected to it and he basically found himself in the middle of the battle the battle was raging around him through the painting so you could have another scholar come and analyze the painting and go say oh he got the right type of gun and the right type of swords and the right type of this and the blood looks and all these different things you can figure it all out that's a scholar who never experienced battle so you can come, analyze it, write a report on it, and move on to the next thing. But someone who can connect to the theme of the painting can lose himself in the painting. Use the Bina. Oh, Das. This is the Das. There we go. So Bina, the scholar has Bina. He doesn't just come to the painting and say, wow, beautiful. What's beautiful about it? You see, when you come and you say, you look at a painting, oh, this, this is tremendous. That's Chochma. You don't know it. Yeah, you, you see that it's a beautiful painting, right? Then they said, well, let's do some vino over here. Let's go and analyze all of the details of this thing. Let's see how amazing it is. And after using Bina, a scholar can go and give 10 speeches on one painting. Amazing, amazing stuff. But then he goes home and he goes to sleep. He used Chachma, he used Bina, that's it. But then you could have a simple guy, a soldier, who really connects to the theme of what's going on over here, he stands in front of the painting and just, he faints. 
who really connected to that painting? Who has that painting? For whom will that painting be forever memorable? The soldier. Right? The one who fainted as a result of, of, of losing himself in the painting. Same thing is true when it comes to the knowledge of God, which, in other words, we, we could study about God, study about the world, we can understand all of these things, we can, we can study these things for hours and hours and hours, we can know it well, we can explain it to others. But, if you don't spend time thinking about this in a way that, no, no, this is, this is me, this is about my God, my relationship, nothing real is going to come of it. What do you mean nothing real? Yeah, it's possible a person will get excited about Judaism and will oh, do good things, etc. But we want to talk about a true type of love and fear of God. If he doesn't spend time really immersing himself, not in the not, not in the in the details of the knowledge, but in realizing, hey, this is what I am. That we're talking about me here. Then it's not going to be a true love and fear of God. And that's one of the reasons why the why the, the teachings of Chassidus promoted the idea of praying for a long time. What does it mean to pray for a long time? To daven, very long. The words are there. If you know how to read, he reread. Next, you move on. Right? I was going to say, uh, concentrate on the words. Have kavana. Okay, how long could praying with kavana take? How long could it take already? An hour? Two hours? What are you doing over there already? But there are Chassidim until today. That they can start davening at 6 o'clock in the morning and not be finished till 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. What are they doing? You know what they're doing? They're not just saying words. They're losing themselves in the, in the content of what's happening here. They're really davening. What's the difference between davening, saying the words, and meaning the words, and having kavana, all that type of stuff, but not doing so with this idea of das? When a person davens with now, by the way, das doesn't mean that it has to take hours. It doesn't mean that it could take two minutes. It could take two minutes. But you have to you have to focus on that, right? All I'm saying is that someone that takes him six or seven hours to daven, you better hope that he's not just saying the words. If he's only saying the words, is there something psychologically wrong with this person? Um, but if it's taking six, seven hours, there's a possibility that, that this is what's happening. He's losing himself in, in, in the ideas. In, in other words, he's, he's connecting to these ideas in a real and true way. Someone who davens, someone who prays without this element of das, you know what happens right after he davens? He has a good breakfast. <laughs> a good breakfast. And when he goes to work, he's like, ah, where's the next deal? Let's cut the next deal here, huh? Why? Not a bad person. Not bad at all. A very good person. He davened. But what could be better than that? Yeah, but, but the davening didn't change the person. I davened. Right? So now I'm davening and I'm eating breakfast. When I daven, I'm holy and wonderful. And when I eat, uh, I want to make sure that I have salt on it. And that if it's not served properly, I send it back into the kitchen and say, bring it back uh, well done. Right? I get all nitty-gritty about what? What is it already? The way it was prepared. Move on. Eat it and move on. No, no. It's important. Um, so that's... But, but someone who davens with this element of da'as, at that point, the breakfast doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, you have to eat in order to be healthy. 
But if they're salt or not, doesn't matter anymore. If the, if the eggs are sunny side up or if they're scrambled, doesn't matter anymore. As long as it's food, you move on. When you come to work, it's more about doing things honestly and properly and helping out others than, oh, cutting another deal in order to, in order to, to pocket some more money, right? Remember when we talk about this, God, could you compare it to this word that you, know, you nullify yourself? Or is that really in other words, the, the, it's you, definitely you a result. It. It's a yeah, it's a result of das. But here we're talking about das as a as a specific verb. In other words, there's a certain there's a certain there's a certain um, action. I don't want to call it action because it's not an act. It's more like a, you're you're putting yourself in a certain mode. Um, it's a certain exercise. I like that better. Exercise. So this guy that's looking at the picture is the military. Because he had the experience, he sees this, and so what I'm saying is, he didn't make the choice to fake. He saw this picture, and because he had this experience, he painted because he was, like you said, he lived it. He didn't have to, if I go up to that picture, like you said, I'm going to go home and go to sleep. But are, can you actively make, the, in other words, can you make the active change to say I'm going to faint in other words oh. so first of all the soldier also made a choice the soldier could have seen the picture and walked away <laughs> he made a choice to stand there and lose himself One second. I, I understand your question right. I'll get to that that was an active choice to lose yes. but yes. if he stands in front of it, it the question is oh, he knows that if he stays he might, he might yeah very good 100% so your question is the soldier is able to lose himself in the photo in the, in the, in the painting because he was in battle but I was never in battle, so I can't lose myself, right? So how does it work here when it comes to godliness, when it comes to God? The answer is, as what the altar is going to tell us. You have to realize that your relationship with God is already there. You just have to unpack it. You have to connect to it, but it's there. In other words, just like the soldier is able to connect to that painting in such a unique way because he had that experience, today's parlance is trauma, you're born with with God trauma. <laughs> it's not a nice word to say. But in other words, it's embedded within you already. It's there. That's part of the secret of Kikar You should know that you inherently have a relationship with God. By the way, what are we talking about over here? A divine soul, which is It's a part of God, literally. This is all part of the secret. But you have to make that active, you have to make that choice, that decision that you're going to do this exercise of Das. To connect to it. Let's just conclude here with the last words. Therefore, Das is the basis of the Midas, which is the emotions, and the source of their vitality. It contains Chesed and Gvura, that is to say, love with its offshoots and fear with its offshoots. In other words, Das is not another element to understanding something. Das is the verb through which we take understanding to the emotions. And so Das is not understanding another detail, is not understanding something deeper. Das is about connecting. It's about connecting me to the, to the idea. <coughs> and therefore, when it comes to the service of God, praying to God, the, the, the idea of tefillah, the idea of prayer, is so central. Beforehand, we have to learn about God. And then when it comes to prayer, it's not just about the recital of the words and asking God for things. It's about meditating on the fact that everything that I learned about is really relatable to me.
And that is the function of Das. I think Our, it's like some people that are non-believers that you talk about Hashem and they say, oh, that's just nature, you know. So don't contemplate to see there is... I don't know if they have to contemplate with that. They just have to be made aware of other things. In other words, yeah, when someone says, oh, this is nature, I say, very good. Nature is God. Nature is God. Very good. But if, if they don't have the diet, they don't have the ability to... Or they don't want... I mean, they don't want to. I'll tell you a little secret. I'll tell you a secret. The, the How you say, missing das is not just a chronic problem for non-believers. Many believers are also missing das. That, that, that's the problem. In other words, Das is not something that will all of a sudden make someone a believer. To have belief, you don't need Das. Belief, whatever, I don't want to get into the, but what the, the Altareb is referring to over here, we're talking about a guy who believes in God. He understands God. He's learning deep. He's learning Kabbalah. He's learning the deepest secrets of the Torah. And he wants to love God. And by the way, he does. He loves God. You could see him. He's all passionate and fiery about it. And Alter Rebbe calls him out and says, Have you used Das yet? If you haven't used Das, the love and fear is not real. That's what I was referring to over here. I have to realize that Tanya is not about trying to make non-believers into believers. Tanya is about turning believers into believers. Ah, that makes sense? That is, if you're opening up the Tanya, you're already a believer. If you're opening up the first section of Tanya, the first 52 chapters, it's not about convincing someone that there's a God. Not at all. When you open up the, the first chapter of Tanya, you already believe in God. Without a question. What do you do now? How do you relate to Him? How do you have the relationship with Him? This is what Al Tarab is talking about. All right. Good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.